Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle, a student-run, student-scripted, and student-produced news show on 88.1 WKNC, HD1 Raleigh. I'm Nick Weaver. And I'm Marissa Jordan. Today we're going to be taking a look at a specific group of North Carolinians, prisoners. In the past month, there have been numerous protests about the unfair wages given in prison. Our contributor, Enzo Moretti, interviews two prisoners' rights activists about their demands. That's coming up in just a second. Stay tuned. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. I'm Enzo Moretti, and today we'll be talking about how prisoners just staged one of the largest nationwide prison strikes in the country's history. The strike lasted from August 21st to September 9th. Prisoners across the country refused to work and in some cases refused to eat to protest low pay and abysmal living conditions. For many inmates that were on strike, they say forced labor and low pay is modern day slavery. Prisoners nationwide released a 10-point list of demands, which included the right to vote for felons and ex-felons, accessibility for parole, and increased funding for Pell Grants. The strikes were organized after a deadly riot in the Lee Correctional Facility in South Carolina left seven prisoners dead. An inmate from that prison told the Associated Press that the bodies were, quote, stacked on top of each other by guards after the riots ended, and that prison guards at that riot intentionally let fights happen, and that poor conditions in the prisons lead prisoners to take actions like this. Today you'll hear from an inmate from Hyde Correctional Institute in Swan Quarter, North Carolina, as well as two activists who have been supporting the strike from the outside. Today I'm joined by two prison rights activists who have been organizing with prisoners here in North Carolina. Samara, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Samira Braithwaite. I am a resident of North Carolina, and I'm a part of a coalition of uh, activists and community supporters who are um, passionate about the strike that's taking place with the prisoners. We're passionate about um, being in collaboration with the prisoners, um, and we're passionate about abolishing mass incarceration. My name's Al Parsons. Um, I've also, I'm also part of this, this uh, sort of ad hoc coalition of individuals and groups that's been supporting prisoners throughout the course of this uh, th- roughly like three-week period of striking activity, um, trying to help spread word about it throughout the state and help build support on the outside and show solidarity with folks who are putting their bodies on the line to um, basically stand up for themselves and for each other inside prison walls. Yeah. So could you talk to me a little bit about the demonstrations at the Hyde County Correctional Facility and how activists on the outside have been supporting prisoners during this nationwide strike? Sure. Um, There have been two demonstrations um, at the Hyde Correctional Institution in, I think it's Fairfield County, and there's been a a great robust group of supporters who have come out, who have made noise outside outside of that prison, and at the first demonstration, it was really encouraging because there were a group of prisoners, probably somewhere between 125 and 150 prisoners, who were already out on the yard um, taking advantage of their recreation time period. And those prisoners created banners, which reflected some of the demands that specifically North Carolina prisoners have. So one of those demands is actually about parole. Um, so in North Carolina, North Carolina removed the, removed the possibility for parole in 1994. So that was what one of the banners said. And they hung some of the banners on the fence. Supporters and prisoners waved back and forth to each other. Um, supporters chanted as loudly and as fiercely as they could. And it was it was a really, really 
exciting height demonstration. An inmate at the Hyde Correctional Facility who was in correspondence with Al shared these thoughts about the prison actions at Hyde Correctional. I would like to give a shout out to all the prisoners in, in the state of North Carolina. And this, we need everybody. You know, this is, this is not a white thing. This is not a black thing. This is an all thing. This is for all of us, for parole, better food, better living conditions. And if you get in trouble, you need to explicitly tell these people this is a peaceful protest. We're, we're coming to you under the First Amendment, uh, free speech. You have a right to assemble as an inmate union. And that's what I'm calling everybody to come forward to do and to support this cause. We have support on the outside. We have 17 states following us, you know, 11 prisons in North Carolina. We need everybody. Every man and woman counts. If you want to go home, if you want better food, if you want education programs, parole, all these things, you need, you need to stand with us now. So the strike was called after prisoners in a leave correctional facility were involved in a riot that left seven prisoners dead. Um, an inmate from the prison told Associated Press uh, that after the riots ended, prisoners intentionally let fights happen and that poor conditions in prisons lead prisoners to take actions like this. And I was wondering if you could connect that to the strike demand that includes better conditions in prisons and how we can have COs that, that could recognize the humanity of imprisoned people. Okay, there's a few different... So just, I, I think what you meant was that guards let those fights happen. Yes, that's... Sorry, that is what I meant. Um, and then there's a question about how COs might recognize the humanity of prisoners. Okay, so those are two different things. So I'm going to try and remember to deal with both and Samira will help me if I do a bad job or... She'll take over. Um, so I think, inter the all right. So I think it's important to take a long view of an understanding of why violence happens inside prisons between prisoners, um, particularly since the early '70s. Prison administrations across the country have explicitly, in their own words, in their own paperwork, had to rely and chosen to rely on provoking and stoking internal divisions between prisoners as a way to manage facilities. It's not an accident. It's not like a thing they're trying to prevent. Literally, they wouldn't be able to control facilities if they weren't provoking and creating and enhancing those divisions. And they do that by housing certain people in certain places. They do that by spreading certain rumors. They do that by allowing certain kinds of guard corruption and not allowing others. Um, they do that by working with gang, uh, like poli police that deal with gangs in certain ways. They do that by gang enhancements, which is one of the demands that prisoners have focused on intentionally, talking about the racist way that gang enhancements occur. So there's this large larger context to how and why prisoner-on-prisoner -prisoner violence occurs. And I think it's important to understand that this strike organizing is a conscious and intentional effort by prisoners to reach across gang and religious and racial um, differences and at times rivalries to get past those explicitly provoked divisions and rebel against administrative control. Yeah, and I think administrators have learned from 1971 during the Attica Rebellion, sure, um, sure. which was a, a Attica Correctional Facility in 1971's prisoners took control of that prison and then responded to in very violent ways where uh, police opened fire on prisoners right. that were on, mostly unarmed. Yeah. And I think prison officials now sort of think that they need to provoke these sort of situations to prevent another Attica because yeah. they don't want to
Control. I really, not to get too too abstract, but I think it, it mm-hmm. directly mirrors the kinds of control that policing has in, sought to enhance in, in cities on the outside, too, right? Like, it's like the explosion in gang violence, the explosion in certain kinds of drug dealing, um, and, 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 like, relationships between illegal capitalism and police and, and certain sects in various neighborhoods, all, it like, actually very much mirrors what's gone on inside prisons since the mid-'70s. So I just think it's, it's important to take a long view of prisoner on prisoner violence and understand this as something that's systemically enhanced um, and see this strike actually as as a as a remedy to it um, the remedy is not going to come from the top down we're not going to get safety by having better guard training or m- bigger prison budgets or more beds you're going to get safety by prisoners organizing and demanding it and um, forcing it so th- the second question I think you had was how do we get a situation in, in hand where COs recognize the humanity of prisoners I don't think that's possible I think it's completely counter to the function and reality of prisons inherently um, full stop. I think that's like asking how could we get plantation owners to respect the humanity of slaves mm-hmm. and it's the wrong question. I don't I, we could ask that question but what's the point? We're not trying to make more democratic prisons we're trying to destroy prisons mm-hmm. um, and this organizing is a step towards that in, in the sense of building prisoner power. So one of the demands prisoners have put forward is that they want the Prison Litigation Reform Act to be rescinded. Can you go into a little bit about what the Prison Litig- Litigation Reform Act is and why prisoners want it gone? Yeah, so that act, the simple version, and I'm not a lawyer or a litigator, um, but the simple version is that it makes it much, much more difficult for prisoners to work their grievances and their complaints through legitimate channels. Um, And one example of how that works is that uh, it requires prisoners to go through the internal grievance procedure before they're allowed to, to... file lawsuits. The grievance procedure is universally considered by prisoners that I correspond with as a complete joke. It's like a kangaroo court and the old old phrasing. And it also is risky because prisoner it's not uncommon for prisoners to file a grievance and fill out the paperwork and give it to the guard and then the guard will tear it up and put them in a chokehold and send them to the infirmary for filing a grievance. And there's never going to be any... It's done with total impunity. And so... What this act does is it essentially shuts prisoners off from the courts as, as a, a legitimate form of, of trying to create change and then forces them into an internal process whereby the administration is supposed to sort of govern itself, which, of course, is, is a joke. So um, that's one of the reasons, that's sort of the background context why prisoners have to organize direct action is in addition to the fact that courts are always going to exist to support prisons. Fundamentally, there's this like really specific closure of quote-unquote legitimate channels, and so, of course, prisoners have to organize things things like strikes and protests and riots and things like that. So the act actually also placed limits on the fees that attorneys representing prisoners can earn. And so it creates like an entire disincentive for those attorneys to actually represent prisoners. Um, It makes them less likely that they'll take on those cases. Um, Yeah, so that's another thing that the act did. Another demand that prisoners have put forward is the ability to have parole. And you mentioned that in Hyde Correctional that the prisoners had a banner that said parole and mm-hmm. that they were calling for parole for prisoners. Could you touch into a little bit about what if that demand entails? Yes, I can talk a little bit about demands for parole. Um, so first of all, there's an issue with the inability to get parole, especially in North Carolina, um, since that was removed in 94. So there's that's one thing. 
only other thing I'll say about parole is in addition to the fact that prisoners in North Carolina have a hard time getting it in the first place. Across the country, there's a, a very, very clear racial uh, bias based on who gets parole. Um, if you look at uh, quote-unquote criminal offenders whose quote-unquote victims are white, um, if the quote-unquote offenders are black or brown, the rate at which they get parole like drops through the floor. And if the victim is black or brown, quote-unquote victim is black or brown, the rate at which the perpetrator is given parole like jumps to the roof. And it's kind of astounding if you look at it on like a national statistical level. I don't have those stats in front of me, but uh, yeah, just to sort of s- summarize that research. So in addition to the just like availability of parole in general, it's also worth pointing out there's a like hugely racist bias on, on how it's doled out. Another one of the demands that prisoners have brought forward is the demand for representation in government. Most ex-felons and felons in a lot of states, especially southern states, are not given the right to vote. And can you talk a bit about um, the movement for felons to get the right to vote and for ex-felons to get the right to vote here in North Carolina and in the country? Sure. The the 10th demand is something that, as far as I can tell, like that campaign started even like before the strike started. Like I was reading about the right to vote campaign in May and June. Um, so it's been something that I think has been really important for the prisoners for a while. There. I want to frame this all by saying that the prisoners are really interested in making sure that legislators see all of these demands. Um, And then, yeah, prisoners, current prisoners and many ex-felons do not have the right to vote with the exception of, um, or excuse me, cannot vote with the exception of two states, which is Maine and Vermont. And so, and interestingly enough, interestingly enough, I just learned that New Jersey's group of legislators, there's a group of legislators in New Jersey who are trying to put together their own campaign to bring uh, felons and ex-felons the right to vote. I think the only thing I'll say is that personally, I mean, and I'm not speaking as like a, I'm not speaking as a prisoner representative of anybody but myself right now, but I don't put any faith in the right to vote as a way to make change. And I, and I do know for a fact from correspondence that a ton of prisoners also share that criticism that, you know, they're not going to change the prison system through the channels of voting and things like that. I, I, I rather, I see this 10th demand, um, about the way that the prisoners are disenfranchised when they get out of prison as sort of more of like evident of a larger pattern of social death. So for example, I think it's also worth pointing out that prisoners aren't allowed to own, like felons aren't allowed to own firearms when they get out of prison, despite the fact, even if their, their felony has absolutely nothing to do with, uh, gun violence at all. Um, it's more of evidence of like a larger pattern of social death that, that applies to prisoners and ex-prisoners. And I think that's sort of how I choose to see that or how I understand that you could almost actually, I think, look at voting as like an example of like the internal grievance procedure that is like the kangaroo court the prisoners themselves are like sort of treat as a joke so anyways that's my perspective i think it's also interesting to look at how north carolina prisoners who released their own set of demands in conjunction with this national nationwide strike actually didn't mention the right to vote thing at all and are focused more on immediate living conditions so i think there's arguably a a wide degree of orientation among prisoners about how best to sort of push strategies for improving their immediate conditions and and abolishing prison and i think like the way that the strike together has been emblematic of the fact there's like huge diversity of voices and perspectives on that 
So I wanted to ask about what the conditions inside prisons are for prisoners um, because of North Carolina solitary confinement rules and the mental health effects of long-term solitary confinement for prisoners here in North Carolina. Yeah, so to my understanding, um, North Carolina Department of Public Safety specifically, um, which is like our DOC, has a rule, an internal policy that says mental health prisoners or prisoners with mental health issues cannot be held on in solitary confinement or segregation for more than 30 days. Um, And so the very first demand that North Carolina prisoners released in conjunction with the nationwide demands is addresses that, says all mental health prisoners who have been, it's just a demand asking NCDPS follow its own policy. Um, But the reason they're asking for that is that NCDPS doesn't follow that policy. Prisoners who have very serious mental health conditions, deep schizophrenia, um, very difficult bipolar disorders, issues that are not getting medicated in the ways prisoners are asking for, will be held on solitary confinement for a year, two years, three years at a time. And if you can imagine already struggling on the outside with those conditions, imagine being in a cell for 23 hours a day with no human interaction. And so what ends up happening is those prisoners uh, disproportionately commit suicide. They attack guards out of sort of often sort of like almost as a need to have an interaction. They um, swallow razors. They set fires in their own cells um, and at times uh, commit suicide in really gruesome ways. And then the NCDPS claims total ignorance or sort of innocence when in fact there's a sort of system of, of planned negligence that goes in, in, in um, into effect with mental health prisoners. And the final thing is that is huge numbers of people in prison across the country are there because of mental health issues. Um, the deinstitutionalization of the mental health system in this country in the 70s meant that tons and tons of people who would have ended up in prisons that were effectively sort of mental health prisons now end up in state penitentiaries instead. Um, It's sort of like old boss, same as the new boss. The only thing I would add um, is that there's absolutely no transparency around any of what Al just talked about. The The way that I see these stories come out in media is... There was a death in the jail, and they're completely disconnected from any of the systemic causes of deaths in the jail or deaths in prison. Um, I think there have been 15 people who died in Mississippi, Mississippi, in the Mississippi prison system this in the last month. Right, so these things come out, they're completely de- decontextualized, and the media, the media has absolutely no way of explaining these things. They have no narrative for talking about them, which is connects to solitary confinement um, because there's really inaccurate counts of how many people in this country are actually kept in solitary confinement. The typical number that media um, media outlets normally use is about 21,000, and there was an article in the Washington Post recently that said about 25,000 people are kept in solitary confinement. Um, there's been another there's been another study done because. Um, there's some sort of census that the Bureau of, of Justice actually does um, where they've counted that it's probably around 81,000. And part of the problem is that they're counting things at a federal level and not counting things at local and state levels. So there's just there's absolutely no transparency and no accountability for what takes place in prisons. So at one, at one end, you have abuse by COs and guards, and at another end, you have 
people dying. And yeah. I also want to go back to the the short. Al had talked about looking at what happened in South Carolina in a short term and long term. And in a short term, those prisoners did not just die; they bled out. They bled. They mm. died because they were there was complete medical neglect. They were un- untreated. Yeah. They were untreated. Those seven prisoners. Um, so you know, I think that's what it means to kind of like look at it in the short term. Why do you think there's been, a, for the most part, a media blackout around the prison strike? There were a few articles at the start of the prison strike, but why do you think that media outlets haven't sort of seized on to this, one of the largest nationwide prison strikes um, in our country's history? In 2016, we saw a very similar thing where most media outlets ignored the prison strike. And how do you think we can counter those things? I mean, I'll say two things. I mean, one, I've actually been surprised at the amount of media coverage. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I would say there's, there's sort of been more than I thought there was going to be. Um, it tends to come from sympathetic or semi-independent sources um, like this one. So there's actually been a, a lot of coverage in mean, Al Jazeera, The Guardian, uh, New York Times. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of mention on, on that level. There's a lot of mention in like kind of like sympathetic press. I think local TV stations and radio uh, and press like in, you know, Triangle area like Durham Herald Sun or News and Observer, those kinds of papers have been very hesitant because they have a policy of not printing or relying on prisoners as witnesses. And that's a systematic policy they choose to have um, that is absurd. So what the pattern that exists and what NCDPS has figured out how to manage this situation is prisoners will call their supporters, they'll send letters to their family, they're saying we're organizing a sit-in or a protest or this thing just happened or this abuse just happened and this is how we're reacting. And people will do everything they can on the internet, social media, they'll send out press releases like we are to say this is going on, this is going on. And then you know, News and Observer will be like, okay, that's cool. We'd like to do a story, but we have to confirm it with NCDPS. And NCDPS knows the only people who have any access to what's going on are them and their employees. And so yeah. they say they just deny everything, right? And then News and Observer goes, well, NCDPS denies it happened, so we can't do a story. And it's it's a pretty simplistic strategy of containment. Um, I think NCDPS is also aware that prisoners read the news and watch TV in prisons, and they realize that like, if word of prisoner organizing is spread in those ways, that they'll have a diff- difficult situation to control. So I think NCDPS is playing a clever game um, by denying anything that's happening, but they're also releasing affidavits where they're like disciplining prisoners for strike organizing, and it'll explicitly say that in their disciplinary infraction form, which we'll then get a copy of and be like, well, if there's no strike organizing going on, why does your disciplinary infraction form say you're putting this guy in the hole for strike organizing. Mm. And so it's it's right. it's an obvious sort of catch-22, I guess. Um, the only thing that I really want to add to that, that uh, strike organizers inside and outside um, have started talking about and putting together is that in in situations where the media does report on, on what's happening with a, a, a prison strike, folks in the media don't really know what they're doing. Um, there's, there's a real... <laughs> So there's a real, um, going back to what Al said about um, communication with prisoners themselves, um, it can be quite difficult to get in contact with a prisoner. It's not like you can just call, like, find somebody's cell phone and cell phone number or it's just the communication takes a lot longer. Um, and so I think that media outlets need to change their, their time frame. We need to change the way that they like think about the amount of time that it's going to take to get information both in, into the prison and outside uh, from out from the prison basically is what I'm trying to say. 
Yeah, it's it's quite it's quite a bit of work. It could also mean that you have to drive four hours to go out to a prison that's in the middle of a cornfield. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's yeah, in the middle of nowhere essentially. Um, but all of those things are done intentionally to prevent members of the public, to prevent oppressed people, to prevent us from knowing about what goes on inside. It's to prevent accountability from ever taking place. So this is an invitation for the media to step it up, to change their tactics, to develop a strategy for learning how to, to, to communicate with prisoners and to get information from them. Yeah, you know, one of the one of the last things we, uh, I think both of us would like to say is just if you're listening to this on the inside, um, if you're in a cell on uh, Western Boulevard or if you're up on Bragg Street, um, just want to give a shout out to you and say, you know, we know that y'all are in there struggling and doing whatever you can and um, to live with dignity and organize with folks. And uh, we have your back however we can, you know, we'll do people on the outside are talking about this strike. People are talking about how to support folks who are taking risks on the inside long term and um this doesn't end on september 9th it doesn't end when the strike ends like people long term are going to have y'all's backs and um the prison system can't put can't reclose this pandora's box it's open yeah for sure we see you we love you um and we've seen the organizing that you've been doing it's amazing we are in such an amazing coalition um and yeah after september 9th it's on and popping all right yeah thank you so much for joining me today you're welcome That about does it for this week's show. We appreciate you joining us on this beautiful Tuesday evening, assuming that you've been listening to this live. As always, if you heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, let us know at publicaffairs at wknc.org. And be sure to check out our blog at wknc-eot.tumblr.com. Our intro music for today's show and every other show was Connie by Elton Eleven. You can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle next week, September 25th from 6 to 7 p.m. Thanks again for listening in, and you all know the drill. Stay tuned for your usual programming of amazing indie music, and we'll see you all next time.